0: This is worth repeating from Texas Public Radio, real stories told by your neighbors and friends. I'm Andrea Vocab Sanderson, San Antonio Poet Laureate. In the summer of 2020, after the killing of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer, the collective response in cities all over the country was outrage, followed by a backlash, followed by righteous frustration at that backlash. But throughout all of that, Altering and imperfectly, came a wave of reflection and introspection. We asked our listeners to tell us their stories of racism and discrimination in San Antonio. Kirsten Thompson starts off this episode re-examining a childhood memory.
1: Looking back, I can honestly say that I can't remember a time where the ever-present undercurrent of racism was just absent from my life rather it seemed to sort of always be there in the ether kind of lurking about and it informed so much of how we existed whether that was expectations of behavior as children because the standard is different or if we could pass through a certain town depending on the time of day or night but one particular experience that i had early on delivered a gut punch to me that I still remember vividly, viscerally to this day, 30 years later. It was the summer of 1991 and my mother, my two sisters and I had just moved to San Antonio, Texas from a small town right outside of Houston. And I was excited. I was elated because I was going into junior high In my mind, junior high was close to high school. Therefore, I was entering the world of adulthood. And I was very eager to make new friends, to just be in a new city, but also to learn because I was a nerd. So one of my favorite, favorite teachers, the second year that I was at this school, seventh grade, I just adored her. She was tall, she was elegant. She was worldly. She always talked about her travel. She had impeccable diction. And I just, I really looked up to her. And I enjoyed going to that class because I always got extra credit opportunities. I always had little side projects. And she would actually talk to me as if I wasn't necessarily a student, but just another adult. And I really liked that. One day, I noticed that more black girls were being enrolled into the school. Now this was significant because the school was mostly white with a small Latino presence and a few black children sprinkled here and there. And I was friends with everyone. I didn't belong to a clique. I didn't have a crew. I didn't have anyone particular that I was besties with. I just got along with everyone. But in that seventh grade year, several new families who were military had moved in and their daughters were enrolled at my school. I was so happy because I was starting to see more girls who looked like me. So during lunch, I made friends with them. We introduced ourselves, we hit it off. It was wonderful. I began to harmonize in the hallways. We would sing together. We would make up little dances outside on the blacktop or even walking you know, from class to class. I just, I was elated. And then one day, that teacher and I, we sort of made eye contact in the lunchroom. And I didn't know what it was, I just knew that it was a little bit different from how we normally connected. But I didn't really think anything of it, I just sort of waved and she sort of nodded and then she left. And because I had her later in the day, it was several hours later when I saw her again. And after class, she pulled me aside And she said, Kirsten, you have so much potential. You are so smart. You're just one of my favorite students. And I was like, thank you. And then she sort of lowered her voice and said, but I want you to be really careful about who you're hanging out with. Now, I had a very conservative, strict upbringing. There was no hanging out. I didn't know what she was talking about. So I asked her like, what do you mean? She said, well, I noticed you've been spending time and kind of hanging out in the hallway with different kids, a different crowd than you normally do. And the only difference that I could think of was these three girls. She said, you have so much potential. I just don't want you to ruin it. And I sat there for a minute, completely confused. And then my confusion turned into sadness because I really liked my new friends. And then my sadness turned into anger. I was livid because I realized that she really meant that she just didn't think I should hang around that many black students. And that hanging with those students would somehow mess up my potential. I never looked at her the same that day. She always insisted that I was still her favorite student, but I stopped caring. And every once in a while, I'll get that same knot in my stomach when I'm in a similar position because those things, they stay with you viscerally. A friend of mine said recently on social media that racism is like that toxic friend that's always in the middle of every argument in a circle of friends. And when you start to examine it, you realize you don't know what anyone's arguing about or what the issue is, because that toxic friend will be there and will show whatever face is necessary. The face that I was shown that day was racism. It was subtle. But discouraging a child to hang out with other children who haven't done anything wrong just because there's too many of you together is a problem. And until we start to face these sorts of problems head on and identify them and call them out, then nothing's ever really going to change. And best believe if I ever run into that teacher, I will be sure to tell her how she made me feel that day.
0: Zell Harper is a self-proclaimed transit geek who works for the San Antonio public bus system. He tells his story about learning to navigate the world as a black man.
2: Before I leave my home each day in San Antonio, I make sure that I always put on a superhero costume. Why? Because I'm trying to protect myself from racism and prevent anti-blackness. So you may ask, well, What is a superhero costume? I want you to imagine every time before you go out picking clothing that doesn't make others feel threatened, that doesn't make them fear you, that doesn't make them feel intimidated. The superhero costume is to make you appear safe and less intimidating. So how do we assign a threat level to clothing? Very easily. Highest level of threat clothing are baseball cap, basketball caps turned backwards, athletic clothing with uh, logos, uh, sportswear, flip flops, uh, the basketball slip-ons, basketball shoes. What are safe clothing? Polo style shirts, khaki pants, khaki shorts, boat shoes, anything that looks all American something that makes people not fear you. That is just a fragment of the stress I go through, what I'm trying to do to prevent racism and to just keep people from displaying anti-Blackness when they see me. Just some of the things I'm doing as a Black man. Now, safe clothing such as a superhero costume is not gonna protect me from anti-blackness. It's not gonna stop racism from happening to me because some people may just already have in their mind, when they see me, they're gonna fear me just because I'm a black man. So I don't have enough time to go into all the examples of racism I have, but there's one that sticks in my mind and I'd like to share it with you now. So I want you to imagine the times BC before Corona when we went to bar and grills and we were just packed elbow to elbow it's a three digit hot summer day and you're inside enjoying the cool ac with just some of the coolest best friends a support system you feel affirmed you feel accepted you just feel like you can just really be your authentic self with these people you're laughing, you're joking, you're having a good time. So in the middle of that, you've been in this bar and grill for a while, you said, hey, just gonna take a quick stop to the restroom. So the restroom is located in the rear of the bar and grill. The only thing back there are the restaurants and a janitor's closet. No exit, nowhere to run. There isn't even anywhere to hide. As you are walking back to the restroom, a lady sees you, and she grabs her purse. So you walk back to the restroom, you're angry, you are pissed. You wanna say something to this woman, but you just know that it's not the right time and it's probably not going to end very well for yourself. So you think, I have an idea. You ask your friends who are with you, Now, you're a black male, so you ask a white male who is a close friend and you ask a Mexican male who is a close friend, both of them with you, you say, can you do me a favor at separate times, walk back to this restroom and see what the lady does. She's sitting in the rear at the table. Both of them came back and told me she didn't even look at her purse. She looked at them and she did nothing. So how I feel about that is racism is wrong. I do believe that racism can be eliminated when non-Black women reject what they were taught, this fear of Black men. And the reason why I say this is that this type of racism is taught. And for those of you who are doing this, people see this example. If you are locking your door, shutting your window, whenever you see a Black man, call me. Something else, if you are exiting the elevator, if you are immediately crossing the street because you see someone, especially a black man coming, or the other example is you're walking with someone and you stand close to them because you see a black man, you are passing on racist examples for young girls or other women to see. So I do believe racism can be stopped when those who are doing such actions stop and just realize the long-term destruction of what you're doing and the negative example you're going to others. So, and I just want to say non-blackness, the anti-blackness and just fear of a black man, is not just limited to white women. This is something that I've experienced from just a lot of women who were not white, but they were not black. And I just wanna just close by just saying, as a Black man, even though I'm wearing a superhero costume, it does not always protect me from racism and anti-Blackness.
0: For some, the upheaval of the summer of 2020 placed a new spotlight on the country's racial inequality. For Leonora Walker, the leader of a nonprofit that supports the formerly incarcerated, it was a reminder of an injustice she already knew.
3: Hello everybody, my name is Leonora Walker and I wanna talk to you about systematic racism. The reason why I'm talking about systematic racism is because I'm somebody that was formerly incarcerated at one point in time, actually six years ago. And when I came out of incarceration, I really thought I could get back to being a productive citizen, get my housing, do the things that I needed to do to take care of my family. But as soon as I got out of incarceration, I was labeled and stigmatized. And I was systematically run through the system in different ways that would try to prevent me from being successful in my reentry. And how is that? Let me share with you a couple of things that I've had to go through. Let's talk about probation. I came out and I had a three year probation. And during that three year probation, I lived in a shelter for a year and a half of that. In living at this shelter, I had to take the bus. So I would take the bus, it takes about two and a half hours to get there. Then I have to sit there for three or four hours, do whatever appointments or requested things they ask. And then I have to come back home and that would take another two and a half hours. Now, mind you, I'm somebody that's come out of incarceration that doesn't have transportation, And this is the transportation that I have. It takes two and a half hours, three, four hours there, two and a half hours back. And I'm yet still requested to um, have a job at the time and pay fines. And that in itself sounds like a setup for me because if I have to be there for probation for all these hours, I still need to work and I have to pay these fines. And if I miss my appointment for whatever reason, if I miss my appointment, they have the opportunity to send me back to jail all these different things that are set up for somebody that's coming out of incarceration that's in recovery it's a lot of pressure and it's a lot of stress and it's also different barriers that are set up that set up to set you back now let's talk about employment now i'm over here doing my probation have to do these probation hours and now i need to get employment okay before i uh, was incarcerated i was a real estate agent I came out and found out very quickly, I could not be a real estate agent now. Well, I needed to get employment. So I went and applied uh, for a job at a big store. And when I applied for the job, as soon as they found out that I was an ex-felon, I was automatically not able to get this job. And let me tell you, how am I supposed to support my family or myself without economics that can support me and my family? So I went to my case manager. My case manager told me, you should try a staffing agency. A staffing agency is where you go there and you work daily and they pay you daily. So I went to the staffing agency and found that I could get the same job at the same store through the staffing agency, making less money. See, if I went and worked at the store without the staffing agency, I would have made probably about $11. But through the staffing agency, they were going to pay me $7.25 an hour, plus I work hours that other people don't work. And I'm talking about the two to seven o'clock in the morning type hours. And I got to get this job and I got to work there and I got to find transportation that would take me to do this job for making very, very minimum. And it's not even steady. It's not a steady income. So there's employment that there's a, um, what I have to deal with, the systematic system of employment, because now, because I'm an ex-felon, now I can't even get a proper job. And if I can't get a proper job, and take care of myself there's a big chance and actually in the state of texas 63 percent of people within three years re um uh are sent back into incarceration so let me tell you this is a problem and this is what i'm talking about systematic racism that's set up to set me back now we talked about employment we talked about probation i want to talk about housing Housing, when I come out, man, talk about a setup. Let me tell you, I had to live in a shelter. I didn't have anywhere to live at the time. So when I lived in a shelter, I was trying to find an apartment. And when I tried to find an apartment, I found a list called fel- felony-friendly apartments. Felony-friendly apartments means that these are apartment complexes that take people that have felons. When I went to go look at the apartment, It reminded me of what I consider a large trap house. A trap house is a big place where people come together to do drugs. There's so many things going on there left and right. And that's how this apartment complex felt. There was people doing drugs. There was people selling drugs. Everything looked in disarray. The pool was suspect in itself. All these different things were going on. And since you're an ex-felon, if you try to complain or if you need something fixed, and they don't do it in a timely manner and you start getting upset about it, they can evict you. So there's a lot of poor um, management that goes on with a lot of these felony friendly apartments that they have for people. And then I wanna talk about support. That's a big issue is that when a lot of times when you come out, everything with all these barriers, family support is a big one too. A lot of times your family doesn't know how to handle you. They don't know what to do. And then when I came out myself, I had two sons that were homeless. So it was a lot of stressors. So this is a generational thing. This is a systematic thing. This is a lack of education thing. And that's what happened. I ended up getting my GED. I started going to college. I was getting mentored by amazing people. And then I started doing prison ministry. And I'm saying this because I started working within the prison system to see what was going on when it comes to people going in and coming out and how high recidivism rates are. So I did prison ministry for five years. I taught at the Park pr- uh, Women's Prison for two years. And one day, and I thank God for Jesus, he gave me this vision to start my own nonprofit because see everything. And another way in the systematic system is that everything is silo. So when you come out of jail, you have a case manager here. You have a probation officer here. You have a therapist there, a doctor's appointment there, all these th- different things going on and nobody's talking. So you can get slipped through the cracks, which sometimes that's what they want because they make a lot of money in the prison system. When you're in, they make a lot of money when you're out and they'll make more money when they send you back in. So with all these frustrations and this anger I had, I just started decided to start my own nonprofit called FREED Texas. FREED stands for Finish Recidivism. Education, employment, and divinity. So, I wanted to share with you what is systematic racism and how I, as supposedly supposed to be an American citizen, have to deal with the stigma of being formally incarcerated every single day. You take care.
0: Bria Woods spent the better part of her life learning about her own blackness in one way or another. She recounts that journey for us, starting from the beginning.
4: I remember hearing my peers say, I'm not really black or I'm an Oreo. I've been called an Oreo my entire life. I'm in my mid-20s now and people still call me an Oreo. And... I, you know, some of the reasons over the years that I've been told that I'm an Oreo, which means black on the outside and white on the inside, is because I'm so well-spoken or I'm, I'm so educated or articulate uh, because I'm a vegetarian, um, because I listened to the Jonas Brothers. Someone even went as far as to say, I'm not really black because I know who my father is. And what's interesting is I've heard this from both my white peers and my black peers, You know, I wasn't black enough for either group, but I'm obviously clearly not white, so where did that leave me? And, you know, a lot of my peers, and even teachers and, like, people that I looked up to kind of perpetuated this idea that, like, oh, don't worry, you're not black. Like, oh, you're not really black. And they said it in a way as like, oh, congratulations, like, you've evaded some sort of second-rate existence. And, when I moved to San Antonio in 2006 uh, six, um, I started middle school here and I went to a predominantly white middle school in Northeast San Antonio. And that was the first time I started to question, is my blackness a problem? M- one of the girls in my English class in seventh grade used to ask me all like these strange questions such as, you know, do you shower? What do you eat? Do you have a mother and a father? Uh, why does your hair look like that? And it was the first time I felt othered, and you know, unfortunately, I didn't have the vocabulary that we have now. A lot of these words, like even the word microaggression, we didn't we didn't have that in two thousand and seven. You know, a lot of these words and terms and vocabulary have entered our lexicon within the last five or so years. This is relatively new, but that's the issue, right? You know, children, the only currency you really have is social acceptance. So. I didn't want to rock the boat or seem uncool. So I would just kind of like, oh, haha, yeah, I'm not really black. But what I didn't understand is that it was really impacting not only my racial identity, but even the relationships and friendships that I had. I was even afraid to associate with other black kids for so long because I thought like, oh, are my teachers going to think that I'm like, Stereotypically black? Are they going to think that I'm bad? Are they going to think less of me if I'm hanging out with, you know, the black kids that fit the stereotype that they say I don't exhibit? And so it wasn't until I actually moved to another country that I had my first black best friend. I moved to London uh, when I, after I graduated from college, and it was the first time that I could just be me. (laughs) I didn't have to be black first or even a woman first. I could just walk into a room and just be Bria. And that's when I started to understand that, wait a minute, I think I've been lied to. Like, Blackness isn't just this small stereotype. It's more than that. And it was in those years that I lived abroad and I was actually also able to see how racism and prejudice in the United States looks from the outside looking in through the eyes of my friends overseas. And the truth of the matter is, uh, the world is watching. And so once I returned to the United States, I definitely had a much better view of my personal identity. You know, I, I now have many black friends that I'm very close with. And I understand that not only for myself, that blackness is varied. It is as varied as the people who are black. I mean, you know, there's, There's no two black people that are the same. You know, we are individuals. And so not only have I recognized that for myself, but that's also something that I want to impart to anyone listening is to remember that, number one, black people are individuals. You know, we we are more than the stereotypes. And number two, understand that our words matter. What you say matters, especially if you're talking to, Uh, A young or impressionable individual. Um, So just be mindful of what you're saying even if you think it's in jest. Um, Let's try to perpetuate positive and becoming narratives about black people. So yeah at the end of the day I'm black, (laughs) I am a woman, I am American, I'm all these things but truly I'm just Bria. (laughs) So thank you.
0: To close out this episode on race and racism, Daiquiri Brooks shares her experience as a young black girl discovering her identity.
5: Hi, my name is Daiquiri Brooks and I am from San Antonio, Texas. And I want to share my story about colorism and how it has impacted my life. So I remember being in the third grade in San Antonio, Texas and I was playing the game of tetherball with my friends during recess and just like it gets hot in the middle of the day in Texas um, it was a scorcher that day and I remember my cheeks were turning red my body was burning and I didn't want to go inside until they rang the bell so I stayed outside and played tetherball with friends and this girl came up to me and she saw that I was burning And she looked at me and she said, you're burning. And I was like, yeah, I know. And she's like, well, what are you? And I remember looking at her kind of dumbfounded and she goes, I mean, are you mixed or are you black? And my response to her was, I'm black. And she's like, well, what's your mom? My response, black? Well, what about your dad? black and I for the first time in my life at what eight years old felt as though I needed to defend my blackness and that was a really tough position to be in as a kid I didn't talk to my mom about it I internalized it but I just remember growing up and I would be in spaces where I'd be looked at differently because I would be the lightest one in the bunch and um I think that had me always believing that I needed to somehow prove (laughs) that I was black or prove my blackness or prove that I wasn't mixed. Now, it's really interesting because when I went to high school, I had a total opposite experience. So we moved from Texas to Virginia when I was about 12. And I remember going to a predominantly white high school. And I learned about anti-blackness at that point because when I went to high school, I straightened my hair, um, I hung out with my friends and they would say things like just really racial comments about black girls. Like, oh, all black girls have big butts or those black girls this or those black girls that. And they would say racist things. And I remember saying, hey, like, I'm black, that offends me. And I remember one of my friends was like, girl, (laughs) you're not one of them. Like when I see you, I don't see a black girl. And I just remember thinking to myself, wow, right? Like, what does that mean? And that's when I actually realized that being in an all white space, in a space of whiteness, that being light-skinned or lighter skinned was deemed somewhat of having an advantage or being separated from blackness or a group of black people. And that experience really has impacted me and what I've learned over the last few years is because of these experiences, I had adopted anti-blackness. So when we talk about racism and we talk about prejudice and we talk about oppression what we really don't talk about enough is colorism and anti-blackness and so being in a world where white is not just acceptable but white is privileged and it's advantaged and it's more desirable now that i'm older and I'm a mom, I've really had to not only just undo the anti-blackness, but I've had to teach my kids the importance of understanding what anti-blackness is and why it is a form of oppression and how it backs white supremacy in, in a world of whiteness. And the conversations haven't been easy. The conversations have been uncomfortable, but they've been necessary in terms of teaching my kids to love every aspect of themselves from their skin tone to the texture of their hair to the fullness of their lips and to their features that being black is beautiful but being black doesn't mean that it's a specific skin tone that the beauty of blackness is the diversity in the shades of blackness <laughs>
0: The storytellers you just heard received guidance from story coach Kim Johnson. We'll be holding live storytelling events again as soon as it's safe to do so. If you have a story to tell or you know someone with a great story, get in touch with us at TPR.org. Worth repeating events are produced by Paul Flav and Kim Johnson. The podcast is produced by Ben Henry. Our news director is Dan Katz. Production assistance from Rob Martinez and Kyle Perez. Bobby Salucha is TPR's Vice President of Marketing and Communications. Joyce Slocum is TPR's President and CEO. Again, I'm Andrea Vocab-Sanderson. Talk to you next time.